You are listening to the Rural and Northern Psychologist podcast, hosted by Dr. Connor Barker. All right. Hello, and welcome to the Rural and Northern Psychologist podcast. I'm Dr. Connor Barker, your host, and today we have a very special episode in store for you. I am joined by two incredibly accomplished guests who are making an essential contribution to rural psychology, especially when it comes to self-care practices for clinicians in rural and northern communities. So uh, our guest today is Dr. Karen Dick, who completed her doctoral degree in clinical psychology at the University of South Dakota. She currently works in private practice in Oak Bank, Manitoba, and holds the position of Executive Director of the Manitoba Psychological Society. Karen has spent a significant portion of her career within rural and northern psychology, uh, being in the rural and northern psychology program at the University of Manitoba's Department of Clinical Health Psychology, and she was the founding chair of the rural and northern psychology section of CPA. And further joining us is Dr. Melissa Thiessen, who completed her doctoral degree in clinical psychology at McGill University. Melissa currently practices in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Her extensive experience includes working within rural and northern psychology program at the University of Manitoba and contributing to the cardiac rehabilitation program through the University of Ottawa. Uh, She has also uh, previously served as the education director for the CPA. So first, welcome, Karen and Melissa, and thank you for being on the first episode of the Rural and Northern Psychologist podcast. Yeah, our pleasure. Thank you for inviting us. Yeah, Yeah, thank you so much, Connor, for the very kind introduction as well. (laughs) So let's just dive into your work. So in 2019, both of you co-founded The Intentional Therapist. So this is a platform that's designed to support the mental health needs of clinicians, especially women develop personalized and sustainable self-care practices. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about your inspiration behind this initiative. Yeah, um, I guess I can start. And Melissa, of course, please feel free to jump in. Um, Melissa and I um, met actually in the Rural and Northern program. Uh, So that's where we first met and we stayed connected even after Melissa's uh, career and life took her outside Manitoba. And uh, at one point, actually, when we were just reconnecting, we were reflecting just generally uh, some of our observations about self-care practices and the challenges for clinicians and uh, women in particular. And just drawing on, I think, our own experiences in working with uh, a range of mental health clinicians in rural areas and uh, also in other settings and just really appreciating that perhaps the environments we're working in uh, aren't always particularly conducive to good self-care practices. And that there's also seems to be a bit of a, um, maybe an assumption that we just know how to do this and perhaps a bit of an embarrassment about even wanting to talk about this and admit that uh, the practices that we're encouraging our clients to engage in, perhaps we're not uh, as successful as we'd like to be. 
And uh, just from that, I think we just started brainstorming and, and thinking about in what way can we start shifting some of this and make some space for more op open conversations uh, about self-care and the importance for mental health clinicians. And as you mentioned, our focus was particularly on, on female mental health clinicians, because we do recognize there are some perhaps additional factors uh, unique for women. Mm -hmm. Melissa, how about for you? Like, what, what made you decide that you wanted to participate in this type of programming for particularly women clinicians? Yeah, Connor, just like Karen said, I think she and I were both at this point in our careers where we, w we also wanted to do something a little different with our degrees, something beyond one-on-one -on -one client work. As much as we love that, I think what both of us also really enjoyed when we were working for the Department of Clinical Health Psychology was being in a consultative role and uh, doing things on kind of the 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 larger scale and and i think that was something that was still really speaking to both karen and i and and again recognizing that as females there there are some unique challenges i i think to be fair there's some unique challenges for for men in this profession too uh, mm -hmm. but i know certainly for myself when karen and i were first talking about developing something uh i had a a young child and, uh, and, you know, some of those challenges were very apparent in my day-to-day -day life. And, uh, and, and it just kind of was a, a really good time. Uh, and unbeknownst to us, uh, we actually officially launched Intentional Therapist just a few months before the COVID-19 pandemic started. Mm -hmm. So, you know, had, had no idea how relevant these ideas of emphasizing self-care were really going to become, uh, you know, always been important, but I think it's just been highlighted for all of us uh, so much more acutely um, right. since the onset of the pandemic. But let's let's talk a little bit more about what what this practice looks like uh, for those who might not be terribly familiar. So what would you say uh, are the biggest challenges and opportunities that are present for psychologists who are working in rural settings? Yeah, so you know, I think um, I think unfortunately, oftentimes we we get stuck on the challenges, and I I I think those are really important to recognize, and they're particularly important, I think, in ensuring that um, psychologists in rural and northern communities can mitigate some of the um, some of the hazards that come with working in that area. And, you know, I think for, for most clinicians probably working in rural and northern communities, some of the more obvious challenges are, you know, the, the very limited resources that we often find in rural and northern communities um, and some of the, the generalist practice. And, you know, literature says that that, that shows up as a, as a challenge, but also one of the rewards of the work we do. Um, so I think for sure, limited resources, generalist practice, and workload are often identified as some of the key challenges. Um, you know, certainly some of the other challenges, I think, particularly when we're living and working in a small community, is feeling like we're in a bit of a fishbowl. Uh, and there's the community may know more about us in our personal lives than... Um, we're comfortable with. And I think that discomfort really comes from some of the messaging that we get during our training, uh, whether that be implicit or explicit, 
about still the importance of really guarding all this personal information about ourselves. So I think it can, I think it can really leave rural and northern psychologists feeling really confused and perhaps guilty and feeling like they really can't connect with the community and the community members in meaningful ways because there's still this idea that there's kind of something wrong if if our clients uh, have any personal information about us. Um, you know, I'd, I'd certainly need to identify just the isolation from colleagues. That's often, I think, a challenge that uh, that can come up when we're talking about um, rural and northern practice and some of the challenges navigating the rural uh, kind of dual or overlapping uh, roles and relationships. Um, but again, I think there are so many rewards with working in, in rural and northern areas. Um, but maybe I'll just pause and just invite Melissa if there's any 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 thoughts you have that that I've I've missed in talking about some of the challenges. I, I think you've really highlighted the the keys there, Karen. And one thing I know other psychologists uh, talk about is just building on that is like then the tension that can also show up between maybe what we've been taught in school and the realities of the, the the practice in a rural northern or remote area and and just sort of the internal struggles that we might have as well about uh well this is what i was taught you know this is what was discussed in my ethics class for example but now i'm being faced with a situation that like doesn't neatly fit into one of those mm-hmm. ethics scenarios that were discussed and and i and i think that is uh definitely one of the areas that makes practicing in a rural or northern or remote area so challenging because there are often going to be these scenarios that we're maybe going to be faced with that we can't just like turn to a page in a textbook and find the answer to how to deal with it. And of course, that's that's often true for any kind of ethical uh, challenge that we might be faced with. But I think it's especially true in rural and northern settings because the the context is presenting different requirements of us as a practitioner compared to in a more traditional urban setting and again though i think some of those things are the very reasons that many people are drawn to work in in rural and northern and remote settings Um, because the flip side then is that you maybe can get to know um, clients in a slightly different way right still staying professional but there there can be all kinds of beneficial aspects to being more integrated in uh, people's lives and having an opportunity to see people not just through maybe like this lens of what might be considered illness or you know in need of help but being able to see people in the context of other roles in their life as well I, I think can be really beneficial to having a bit more comprehensive view of the people that we're working with as well. So I think it's always so interesting, kind of like Karen mentioned, that many of the things that might be challenges working in a rural and northern setting can also have a, a flip side that that makes them the rewards of the work as well. Absolutely. Well, and I guess what I'm hearing is, is just being a member of the community, right? Like it's a small community when you work rural and northern, kind of everybody knows everybody. And not just that everybody knows everybody, but everybody knows everybody that you're related to or that who you're affiliated with or, you know, X, Y, Z down the line. 
and I and I remember when I when I heard your presentation the first time, um, and then subsequently today, I had this thought of you know being that rural psychologist and having this idea that as a psychologist in a rural community, you need to be perceived as having it all together. That that it's not okay to be the one whose toddler is melting down at you know, the grocery store, and it's not okay to be the one that, you know, might um, be in a conflict with so-and-so else in the community. But the thing is, is that we are human and we're also, we're also living our lives. So kind of the benefits of that small community that kind of knows you and that you feel connected to, while also the challenge of like, by virtue of our role, there's this perception that, you know, we've somehow arrived and that, you know, the challenges that everyone else experiences aren't something that we experience. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that that's such an important piece. And, you know, I think what perhaps um, people can draw from that, that might help with situations like this is, you know, I think there was certainly a time in our training, right, where we were really discouraged from talking about ourselves in any way. Um, And, I think there's been some shifts in that with like DBT and even acceptance and commitment therapy where clinicians are feeling, I think, a bit better able to acknowledge that they use these same techniques and strategies as well. And, you know, for those of you that have done DBT training, right, uh, that approach really does encourage clinicians to give kind of concrete examples of, you know, a way, a situation that occurred to them where they use these coping skills. So, you know, I want to believe that that is giving clinicians permission to bring the human side of themselves into therapy, um, to acknowledge that, you know, we're all human. All of these strategies that we're trying to help our clients with are things that are really valuable to, to all of us, psychologists included. And I like, I really think there's a way to do that that is really beneficial in the therapeutic process, isn't in any way unethical, doesn't put the burden on our clients to take care of us, but just helps helps them to see that we are human. And, uh, and so if they do see us in the community and our toddler is melting down, you know, that's just part of life. And uh, I, I want to believe, I guess, that in some ways that might even make us a bit more approachable. Absolutely. The other the other side that I think about, and it comes up again and again when we talk about um, being a rural psychologist, is this whole notion of the the being the generalist specialist or the specialist generalist, right? And this idea of having to know a little bit about a lot, you know, in order to be able to serve uh, the needs of our communities, because often as a psychologist in a, in a rural community, you know, we're we're the only regulated mental health. Uh, professional that that that's in the community and I I speak from school psychology you know we're one of the few that actually travel out to communities to provide services and those things as well and I I really like how you put it that you know that is both a feature and a bug in terms of uh, in terms of rural practice right and um I just you know I guess what are your experiences in terms of being a generalist what how is that kind of informed how you practice um, and how you approach your client care. Yeah, so 
You know, I, I would certainly say that I, I see the generalist practice more times than not as a, as an asset and one of the joys of rural practice. Um, it's interesting. I'll just share when, when I was earlier on in my career and I was, uh, supervising psychology residents, uh, a resident and, and myself, we did a joint presentation at CPA and, uh, one of one of the comments uh, this resident made in in their portion of the presentation was how they really they really appreciated uh, that I was always saying I didn't know. <laughs> and I, it's kind of a funny thing to hear, but you know, I I think I think it's okay to acknowledge that we're not sure. I think a willingness to do that when we're consulting with people um, and and feeling okay with that. Um, I think of generalist psychology practice in rural areas as being very much akin to the family doc. And I think, um, you know, just like family docs, they have supports as well that I'm sure they consult with when they're encountering a situation where they feel like it would be good for them to know a bit more. Um, so I think that can really help navigate some of the challenges that can come with generalist practice. But for really, for, for the most part, I've seen that as a real joy of my work. I really appreciate the diversity, the age range. Um, and I think we just have to be mindful that it can, it can certainly lead to that imposter syndrome feeling. Um, and it can arise more times than not. So again, I think it's just so key to be connecting with other rural and northern and remote clinicians um, to just realize that this is kind of a shared experience. And I just feel like I just want to say ditto to everything you're saying. <laughs> yeah, I, and I and I, I I also want to say ditto because that that's that's what it's like. Um, and it, it's a challenge, but it's it's wonderful work and being able to see clients not only in in that clinical setting, but also in the public setting, but also kind of that long term, you know, that that you see clients over the long term. Whether they they're formerly your clients or not, you get to see kind of um, growth, growth and um, growth and change over time, right? And that's, that's... Yeah, so true. Yeah. So you know, coming back to your work around self care, so your presentation today talked about the four C's of self care, those being connection, compassion, courage, and creativity. But I want to come to one of the questions that uh, one of the participants today in our session that we had today uh, brought up. And they were talking about courage and that when rural psychologists talk about the reality of their practice, right, there's a sense that psychologists who don't practice in rural settings or who might have more of an urban-centric way of thinking uh, about their practice um, they might question a a, psycho a rural psychologist in terms of their ethics, right? And especially in terms of multiple relationships, right? That that that's that's part of this relationship that we you know often um, you know we'll see our clients outside of that clinical setting, you know, in in just being members of the same community. Um, I guess what are some of your reflections on on these dual relationships that happen and how can we proceed with those dual relationships or address those in a, in a courageous way, as opposed to just avoiding them altogether. Yeah, I can, I can start and Karen, feel free to, to add. Sure. Definitely the first thing that comes to my mind, Connor, is that I think it's, it's also important 
for, you know, anyone working in more of an urban setting in which to be transparent is that's more myself these days. Mm -hmm. um, but the reality is we can be faced with potential dual relationships or overlapping relationships, regardless of where we practice. And, mm -hmm. you know, in fact, I think, especially with virtual practice and, you know, online learning and all kinds of different online communities and groups, uh, I would imagine there's probably a lot of people who are urban based who probably are facing some overlapping relationships with clients uh, that that maybe didn't exist even like five years ago, never mind 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. And and so I think whether we're talking about an urban setting or a rural northern remote setting, I think transparency and communication are are two of the keys. I know at least they have been for myself. Just really being able to to have conversations with our clients about just the nature of, okay, here we are in this interesting, perhaps awkward situation and acknowledging that it feels, it maybe feels awkward for the client, acknowledging it maybe feels awkward for us, um, acknowledging that it maybe is going to take some courage to, like you said, not avoid um, having that, that overlapping relationship and, and really, I think, encouraging and supporting ongoing open communication about what it what is the experience like for our clients in particular to be navigating that and then as appropriate i think also disclosing what our own experience is like um so that again i think that we can be modeling yeah this this can be uh kind of a, a challenging situation to navigate but also modeling that it can be navigated and that there are uh, ethical, professional, effective ways to navigate it. But of course, none of that is going to happen if we're not openly communicating about how we're navigating those overlapping relationships. Well, and even I think, you know, the benefit, like there are some folks who, who may not even engage in a therapeutic process or engage in a therapeutic relationship with a therapist you know, if there isn't some sort of connection to them, right? Because, uh, you know, even though we have made strides, you know, there is still stigma around mental health. Um, and and I think we see that quite plainly in, in rural spaces. Uh, but sometimes just having that knowledge that, you know, this is somebody that I know, this is somebody who is trustworthy in the community, this is someone who is a known entity to me. So so me going and having a conversation mm -hmm. with them or me uh, attending their service, just like they would a term, you know, if I if I worked in a shop, they would come to my shop. You know, I, I can go to their shop and, and that's fine. And kind of that normalizing of mental health. And there's even some reduction of stigma that happens when a psychologist is known in the community. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's I think that's such a good good point, Connor. And it's you know it's interesting. One of the situations that I think of that that comes up that's come up more often for me is situations where seeing multiple people from the same family. And um, for for me in particular, like I I also had a situation where um, I made a decision to see uh, I had provided therapy to a parent and I was going to be providing therapy to the child and also had an experience where some some of my urban colleagues um, 
clearly didn't think that that was perhaps the right the right decision to make. And you know, as Melissa was saying, it's I think there can be a lot of benefits actually to providing service to both a parent and a child. And I think it's as long as there's some transparency. And for me, in a situation like that, my my concern is, is, is the child going to feel comfortable being able to speak with me openly? Do they feel like I've already got their, you know, I'm on their parents' side? Um, and so just having a conversation and sitting down with both the parent and child and and actually ironing out some of these things and and having an open dialogue, it, it's just, I think, so incredibly important. And in the situations where I have seen a parent and a child, I, I can honestly say in my experience, uh, it was only to the benefit of, I think, all of us. My ability to provide good service as well as the parent and the child uh, benefiting from from the service. Right. Well, and, and that we know even when working with kids, like kids are products of their systems, right? And so, you know, making having all the adults in a child's life kind of being on the same page, I, I can see huge therapeutic benefit to a practice like that, even though it might not be something that we would say clinically that like, oh, you know, you should avoid, you know, a dual relationship there or a dual role there. <laughs> Um, coming back to your work in terms of self-care for psychologists, um, I guess you, you've been you've been doing this work now for for a little bit through the COVID nineteen pandemic, um, mm -hmm. and you've been putting on these workshops and working with clients. I'm just wondering, um, in your observations, how have clinicians benefited from your approach to self care? What what are some of your success stories success stories that you've seen? Well, I think one thing maybe I, I'd like to highlight is um, the framework that I think we're using at this point uh, was certainly not there in this form uh, when we began this work. And I, I really feel like Melissa and I and our understanding of what's important and what's needed has kind of grown over the years and gotten us to this point. Um, and, you know, I think that's come from a number of sources. Some of it's been from, you know, the literature around self-care for psychotherapists or psychologists, um, positive psychology, uh, acceptance and commitment therapy, self-compassion, etc. But a lot of it has also come from uh, just conversations we've had with colleagues about some of the struggles that they have and, and the ones that are willing to talk about it. And some of the women we've met through our uh, some of the workshops we've done and such. So I, I think honestly, some of the success stories come from giving credit to the women who've shared their experience with us and I think have really facilitated us moving in this direction for a framework. Um, I think perhaps what people are finding helpful is it's it's not so much about what to do per se because uh, I think really we all know kind of what we should be doing at least when it comes to stereotypical uh, ideas of self-care but I think this really expands the concept of self-care and brings it back to a very individualized level where we feel like a person's values for example are just such an important piece 
of self-care and something that's really been, um, I think, neglected in, in many discussions around self-care. So, Melissa, I'm not sure if you'd like to add something. Yeah, only to to build on that, Karen, in the sense of, I think a, a huge message that we've received from people is really that sense of, again, the normalizing of struggles and then permission to do things a little bit differently, right? Or what, what seems like it's doing things a bit differently, but maybe it's actually what everybody wishes they were, were doing and just <laughs> everyone's still trying to find the courage to make changes from our, our more traditional models. Um, but yeah, certainly some of the things that, that stand out for me from feedback we've received are, again, just people feeling like, I think, they're being seen and heard and that this, that they're not alone in struggling at times with self-care and, and realizing that it's not because it's due to any lack within themselves, but because there's just real challenges of being a therapist, being a female who's a therapist. There's real challenges of being a therapist, working in a rural or in a remote context. Uh, there's real challenges of being a therapist throughout the pandemic. Uh, and, and so I think that the normalizing function has been so valuable and I think so valuable for, for Karen and I as well. Absolutely. Uh, and then, yeah. And, and then, right. And we all do this for ourselves first. <laughs> and, um, and then I think, yeah, it seems from, from feedback as well and is, the, the framework really helps people to be thinking more broadly about how they're approaching self-care so that ideally, yeah, it's not just this thing that is, you know, you book a massage once every two months, but it's how am I approaching not only my time away from work, but how am I approaching my time at work and, and really looking at self-care again, beyond sleep and diet and exercise, which are all very important but also looking at self-care in terms of boundaries and looking at self-care in terms of creativity, right? Looking at self-care in terms of, am I spending time doing things I enjoy doing or does most of my day feel like a slog because I'm doing things that I don't really want to be doing, uh, which really speaks to the values aspect of, um, of our framework, right? Connection is partly about connecting with our values as well as connecting with other people and connecting with new information. And so, uh, yeah, I feel really validated and encouraged that uh, that it, it seems like little by little, as we connect with more people ourselves through this model, it's, I think, most importantly, kind of giving people permission to construct their their work and personal lives in ways that that include them on their own schedule. Fantastic. No, I and I really appreciate uh, your comments on creativity. And I think your your last comments uh, in our presentation today were were talking about being messy or getting messy, uh, and and doing things that uh, in our practices and in our creative uh, in our creative uh, engagement, you know, doing things that are a little bit different and allow us to be creative and and that sort of thing. And I also heard about your staining. Uh, deck club, you know that uh, <laughs> yeah. Karen enjoys uh, staining her deck, and now Melissa does too. And uh, maybe that is something mm -hmm. I should also get involved in. 
You know, I, I, very seriously, Connor, that was just life-saving for me at one point. And it, I think it was just a combination of things, right? It's being able to see the tangible results like immediately, which, you know, is very different than the work we, we do. And uh, being outside, making a point, right? It, it got me outside every evening after work for a certain period of time. And I really felt like, honestly, in that moment in my life, that was the best self-care for me. I was getting so much bang from that. It was amazing. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, both of you, for sharing uh, your work and your insights uh, with the podcast today. It's clear that your contributions are going to make a significant difference for for many of the clinicians who practice in rural and northern areas in our in our country, and by extension, I, I think, to the communities that they serve. So thank you for taking the time and meeting with me today. Our pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting us. Absolutely. Thank you, Connor. Thank you for joining us today on the Rural and Northern Psychologist podcast. If you are a psychologist practicing in rural and northern Canada, we invite you to join our rural and northern section of CPA and join us for our monthly Grand Rounds and Water Cooler sessions. On October 13th, 2023, we will be joined by Dr. Tyler Pritchard from Memorial University, who will be discussing suicide risk considerations uh, in rural contexts. So for more information and to register, send us an email at ruralpsych at msvu.ca or follow us on Twitter at Rural North Psych. So this episode was brought to you by financial support from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada in partnership with the Rural and Northern Section of the Canadian Psychological Association. Our research team is led by Dr. Krista Ritchie and Dr. Sarah King at Mount St. Vincent University and Dr. Veronica Hutchins at Memorial University. Our work was created by Abby Payton and social media is managed by Julia Hall. Follow us on Twitter at Rural North Psych and we would love to hear from you. For now, remember that in wide open spaces of rural and northern Canada to take care of your mind and your community. <laughs>